0: Sermon was recorded at Christchurch Jerusalem. Blessed by our teaching? Consider saying thank you with a financial gift at Christchurch Jerusalem.org. But we not only get to praise God, we not only get to worship God, we don't only even get to bless God, which is an amazing concept in and of itself. We get to hear from God. So please pray with me as we prepare our hearts to hear the word of God. Blessed Lord who caused all Holy Scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read and mark them, learn and inwardly digest them in order that we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. We'll have the first reading from Deuteronomy.
1: This reading from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 30, verses nine through 14. Then the Lord your God will make you most prosperous in all the works of your hands, and in the fruit of your womb, the young of your livestock and the crops of your land. The Lord will again delight in you and make you prosperous, just as he delighted in your ancestors if you obey the Lord your God and keep his commands and decrees that are written in this book of the law and turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Now what I am commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. It is not up in heaven so that you have to ask who will ascend into heaven and get to get it and proclaim it to us so that we we may obey it Nor is it beyond the sea, so that you have to ask who will cross the sea to get it and proclaim it to us, so that we may obey it. No, the word is very near you, it is in your mouth and in your heart, so that you may obey it. This is the word of the Lord.
2: The second reading is taken from Psalm 25 beginning at verse one. In you, Lord my God, I put my trust. I trust in you, do not let me be put to shame, nor let my enemies triumph over me. No one who hopes in you will ever be put to shame, but shame will come on those who are treacherous without cause. Show me your ways, Lord, teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are God, my Savior, and my hope is in you all day long. Remember, Lord, your great mercy and love, for they are from old. Do not remember the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways. According to your love, remember me, for you, Lord, are good. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in his ways, He guides the humble in what is right and teaches them his way. And this, brothers and sisters, is the word of the Lord.
0: Please stand for the reading of the gospel. The reading of the gospel today is found in the book of Luke, chapter 10, starting in verse 25. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him passed by on the other side. But the Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw them, he took pity on him. He went to him, bandaged his wounds, poured on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which? Of these three, do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. This is the gospel of the Lord.
3: Thanks be to God. We have um, something for kids. And uh, if uh, those who are interested and would like to, as I always say, escape the wrath that is to come, there through the exit on your right-hand side, uh, it leads to the church garden and uh, very smart kids, I'm telling you. Let's pray, Father in heaven, We indeed are your children who need your constant guidance and direction and instruction. Lord, we ask that you'll have mercy on us because we're so forgetful and we're so quick to, Lord, justify ourselves or turn our backs on what we know to be the truth We ask that uh, by your Holy Spirit this morning, that you would not only refresh us and reinvigorate us, but Lord, we ask that uh, you would re-empower us to live out the life and teaching of your Son, Jesus, the Messiah. Encourage us, give us strength, and Lord, we pray that uh, as we are obedient, we'll see good fruit in our lives and the lives of those around us. Amen. What a wonderful time of the year liturgically speaking or in, um, in our cycle of lectionary readings because we're in Luke's gospel and uh, we're walking with Jesus to Jerusalem. And uh, Luke has 10 chapters of the journey of Jesus to Jerusalem it is indeed a journey of discipleship and um, a good many of the stories and some of the teaching uh, in these ten chapters from nine to nineteen they 're not found in <clears throat> other gospels um, and so I always find this uh, time of the year to be um, actually quite challenging, but actually quite exciting. And I'd like to remind those of us who who were here last week and new folks as well, that uh, the teaching of Jesus is, uh, or I'm saying, I should say, sorry, was not something abstract and uh, philosophical or something that that he talked about Uh, as an ideal, right, in a vacuum. The teaching of Jesus is in the context of the land of Israel in the year 30 AD, or a little bit after, in which society is fragmenting. There is increasing hatred amongst brothers. There is increasing frustration with uh, Roman rule, disappointment, fear. Relations between Jews and Gentiles are not getting better. Relations between Jews and Samaritans are certainly not healthy and maybe they go up and down. But uh, you may remember that just a few Sundays ago we talked about Jesus the Jew passing through a Samaritan village and the reception that he received when that village learned he was on his way to Jerusalem, so it's in this context, yes of increasing you might say frustration when people are kind of looking for some instant, simple answer to all their spiritual problems, where society seems to be. Um, unwinding and there's increasing division and ultimately a group of extremists will plunge the whole nation into a rebellion against Rome even when the whole nation or the majority of the people don't seem to want that rebellion. And so it's in this context that we read this passage. And the passage is all very well known to us. It says, on one occasion an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So let's start at the beginning. The beginning is that uh, first and foremost, Jesus is called a teacher. What is he a teacher of? Abstract philosophy, Hebraic thought, Stoicism, let's kind of first remember that he's a teacher of the Torah. He's a teacher of God's word, right? This is the context um, or the theological context. So he's a teacher and uh, someone stands up to test him. Now, just because Jesus is tested, it doesn't mean that in every case that the, the one doing the testing is malicious. This is part of the culture of uh, late Second Temple Judaism. In that culture, you had the rise of uh, the laity and the laity took on a job that it seems that the priests and the Levites uh, were reluctant to do. They became teachers of the Torah, te- Bible teachers, and many of them went from place to place, teaching the Bible, teaching the scripture in order so that Israel could come into a state of holiness. And during those days, if you showed up in someone's town, in a market, in a small house synagogue, uh, in maybe the home of a wealthy person, or in a, uh, a grove, an orchard somewhere, and you began teaching, I can assure you, nobody, if you're a newcomer, nobody was familiar with your television program. No one knew your podcast. No one got your uh, you know, Instagram messages or followed you on Twitter. So how were you to know, how was one to know that uh, what you were teaching was in line with God's word, or was a bunch of nonsense. So the culture had a way of, you might say there was a way of sifting you out. There was a way of separating, right? The wise from the foolish. And to use an American expression, someone came along and threw your curveball, or if you're from the British empire, a spinner. And if you could hit the ball, if you could hit the ball, you were allowed to continue, right? So you ask the sage, the teacher, a hard question. I mean, after all, even to this day, we, we don't like it here in Jerusalem. People show up and start taking over our courtyard and start preaching. Who are these people? And who gives them this authority to do such a thing? And so Jesus is always being tested, but so too are other teachers during the time. And so the man asks a question, um, and he wants to know what he must do to inherit eternal life. Now, maybe for a minute, we don't think of this in appalling context. We don't think of Galatians or Romans, but let's just stick to the, 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 uh, the context of the gospels, right? This is before the resurrection, the crucifixion and the resurrection. And it was generally understood by Jewish people and Jesus himself, and there's some continuation of this uh, line of thinking throughout the New Testament that if we want life, that if someone wants life, eternal life, where is that found? And of course, based on the scripture, based on what was read to us from Deuteronomy this morning, based on a verse in Leviticus 18.5, yes, chapter 18 of Leviticus is a long chapter that condemns sexual immorality amongst Jews and Gentiles. But before the, those prohibitions on certain types of sexual behavior um, begins or begins to be uh, spelled out uh, in chapter 18, there's a verse in 18.5 in Leviticus says very simply the following and you think I would have it marked, and I do. It says, uh, excuse me, you must obey my laws. Be careful to follow my decrees. I am the Lord your God. Keep my decrees and laws, for the man who obeys them will live by them. I am the Lord. And thus it was understood that life, not just physical life and blessing, but actually spiritual life is connected to, intimately connected to obedience to God's commandments. So here's a man who's asking a question of halacha. He's asking a question, okay, so what is it that I do to inherit eternal life? And of course, Jesus being a good teacher doesn't necessarily give him the answer. He asks the question, well, what do you think? And, of course, the man replies uh, in a way that's very, you might say, common or typical for that time. He applies, uh, Jesus says, what is written in the law? And the man replied, um, uh, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And by the way, it's worth stopping there for just a moment because uh, all of this, right, the teaching of Jesus, the teaching of the New Testament, isn't simply a matter of having a high place for scripture or having a high place where the authority of scripture, that is the most, that is the a, a basic foundation. But there are lots of people who have a high place for scripture who say they believe the Bible or they're committed to the message of the Bible, but they have the wrong interpretation. And so not only a commitment to the authority of scripture is essential, but so too is the right interpretation. And that's why some of us, at least in Jerusalem and maybe other places, believe that when Jesus is giving the Sermon on the Mount, And in Matthew 5, 17, when he says, I have not come to destroy the law, but I have come to fulfill it, or I have not come to cancel the law, but to fulfill it. That actually we believe that he was speaking Hebrew and using technical terms to say, um, I have not come to misinterpret the Torah. I have not come to misinterpret God's commandments but I've come to show you how they are to be interpreted correctly, right? So this again is a matter, it's a matter of interpretation of the Torah. The man tells us that we, God, uh, the first commandment or the greatest commandment is to love God um, with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, in some ways, the first part wasn't so controversial, at least in the first century. Jews from the year 200 BC, 200 years before Jesus, isolated Deuteronomy 6-4, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul and strength, and made it central and key uh, to their liturgical life and their spiritual life. And when people began to ask the question, how do you sum up the Bible? I mean, there's so many rules and regulations and decrees. Uh, what's the, you know, the, you might say, the mission statement of the Bible. What's the bumper sticker of the Bible? And the uh, Jewish sages, teachers began to teach, love the Lord your God. <laughs> and then they began to add, Love your neighbor as yourself. It's very interesting to note, is it not, that contrary to our culture, modern Western culture, yes, uh, love in Deuteronomy 6.4 is commanded. It's not something quite volitional. We think I'll fall in love if I want to, or I might just walk along the way and love will strike me. It might be love at first sight, uh, which reminds me when I grew up, the most horrible, horrible song of the whole rock and roll canon. If I, by the way, if I, if I don't give a sermon without mentioning rock and roll, it's not a sermon. <laughs> it was by that dysfunctional group from Los Angeles who didn't have a bass player, never trust a group without a bass player. Hello, I love you, won't you tell me your name? Probably was a number one hit. Horrible, right? Right, it's not sentimental, it's not an emotion, right? God isn't commanding our romantic feelings He's not commanding some sentimentality like those messages you get on Facebook every day 10 or 12 times a day. He's commanding that we love him. And love in the context of Deuteronomy is understood to be service. It's understood to be service. And how are we to serve the Lord? Wholeheartedly with all of our heart, which Jews at that time defined as being our emotions and our intellect together, right? Yes, my passion for chocolate cake, as well as my intellectual curiosity, all of that should be used uh, to, to love God. My soul, What does it mean to love God with my very soul? Well, they understood it to mean, was understood to mean to love God with one's very life. Maybe one would be called upon to be a martyr at some time. And finally, to love God with all of our might, which was which was understood to be with all of our financial resources. Now, all of these things had to be defined as we'll see in a minute, because if they're left sort of abstract and they're left somewhere up in the air, how on earth can we obey them? How on earth can we come into life with love? Oh, I just love people, you know. Oh, it's so wonderful. I mean, is it not true that we as Christians kind of live in a world when we we hear all this religious language Yes, and we're not sure what it means always. In comes the phrase, "You shall love," you know, uh, or seek the Lord. It goes down here. We feel warm. We feel good. Yes, I'm going to seek the Lord. But then, the, then it goes out this. Then it goes out the other year because we don't really know what it means. Yes, be still and know that I am God. What is the scripture telling us? Well, we're not sure, but boy, when we hear it, it does somehow animate us. But it doesn't necessarily lead us into any kind of a deeper uh, understanding or deeper relationship with the Lord. Yes? So here, our lawyer has stated, stated correctly, right? He's summed up for Jesus. And uh, Jesus shows his approval. The how to love God wasn't was kind of well understood, and certainly Jesus goes along with contemporary Jewish thinking on that point. And then the, he asks a, another question. He says, "Jesus says you answered correctly, and listen to this. Do this." and you'll live, meaning obedience brings life, spiritual life, okay? But he wanted to justify himself, and he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now, why would he do a thing like that? Why would he ask the question? Because in Hebrew, the word neighbor, reah, could mean, literally just your friends or your family or you could read the verse that comes from Leviticus 19:18 in the context of I'll only love the Israelites I'm not going to love anyone else outside of my tribe or my ethnic group yes and so it was fuzzy and many people Then, and even still sometimes today, yes, the term, the word, and the verse is debated. Okay, so even though the man wanted to justify himself, it was good that he asked the question. Because if sometimes these things aren't defined, how do we carry them out? How do we obey God and come into his blessing or come into you might say a a deeper, more intimate relationship with Him because that's how the New Testament understands uh, our being obedient. And so the who is your neighbor is fuzzy, but in actual fact, the how you should love your neighbor wasn't so fuzzy. And so before we talk about the who, let's talk about the how. And so it was already, again, clearly understood by the time Jesus comes along. uh, The verse uh, had a certain, you might say, uh, common, uh, recognized uh, interpretation. And uh, I know some of you have heard this before, you know, we have a bunch of new people. So I'll give you its dynamic Yes, translation, not even the message can do as well as this, okay? In fact, maybe if those people hear it, they'll steal it from me. And so how do we interpret? how is the verse interpreted in its modern, If I, if I apply the ancient interpretation that Jesus knew to our modern life, it goes like this. You shall love your neighbor, because he or she is an he or she is an idiot just like you you shall love your neighbor because he or she is always justifying themselves just like you do you shall love your neighbor because they're also hypocritical like you are and inconsistent Or you shall love your neighbor because they're also addicted to something like you are. Or you shall, whatever. The the way Jews understood the verse, you shall love your neighbor because they are a human being like you, right? If we want mercy, we want forgiveness, we want a second or a third or fourth chance from people, then we better be sure to give that to others. And that's the understanding of how one should love their neighbor. Today, it's a little bit misapplied, and I've heard it uh, because I do have a high regard for uh, the, the ministry of healing or inner healing or the healing of trauma, memories, uh, et cetera. I've heard the verse sometimes, misunderstood and uh, occasionally in Christian circles, but more often in secular circles, you know, those daytime therapy shows that you can see, it goes something like this. Well, if you can just get your act together and love yourself, you know, and be good to yourself and pamper yourself, then you will be able to love others. And that's a radical misunderstanding. And I'd say that without trying to demean the serious disease of self-hatred, which does exist, yes? And uh, something that uh, the Lord needs to heal if that's our issue. But that's not the way the verse is to be understood. And then, by the way, it goes on to say, shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the verse in Leviticus says, I am the Lord. And it was surely understood that the way that we treat, the way that we treat uh, others will have some bearing on the way that God treats us. Hmm. And it's reflected in the teaching of Jesus, if we want generosity or mercy, and according to Luke chapter six, then we should be generous. If we don't forgive others, how is it that the Lord is going to forgive us? If we're really tough and judgmental with others, and mind you, we do need to judge from time to time. And even if the judgment is difficult, it should be merciful and understanding. The biggest misconception I hear over and over again is that uh, there should never be any judgment. That's not true. It's the way that we judge because the way that we judge and the way that we judge, we ourselves will be judged. And so the how is understood, but the who is still fuzzy. It's still a matter of debate. Yeah, you know, Should we just love those people like us? And isn't it, isn't it true that we also live in a time in many countries where there's an increase in hatred and there's an increased division and there's an increased frustration and people are reaching and looking for simple answers instead of doing those, the things in the way that Jesus taught us, things that might be long and slow, but still sure in the end. And so Jesus, instead of giving just an abstract answer, he tells a story, yes. And uh, these stories that Jesus, these stories that Jesus tell, they're very realistic, but they're also very shocking, yes. And so the parable is that a man goes down from, Jerusalem to Jericho. He falls among some thieves. Very realistic. Yes, he's there on the side of the road. Uh, Also going down to Jericho, to their winter homes, yes, to their uh, luxurious winter homes, comes a priest and then a Levite. And uh, the priest and the Levite, of course, don't stop. And that's pretty shocking because after all, the priests and the Levites know the scripture better than most. They know what the right thing is, but they don't do it. And in the end, who stops to help but a Samaritan, an enemy of the Jewish people, yes. Relations were bad. And getting worse, and yet he is the one who stops. Of course, as we know the story, brings the man to Jericho, and in the process, yes, what has uh, Jesus done? Yeah, Jesus has defined for us who is our neighbor. Who is our neighbor? And the neighbor isn't simply one who receives love because that's what the lawyer asked in the beginning. But the neighbor is also one who gives love. And how is love defined in all of this? Again, not perhaps in the way that uh, we might do it today, in some kind of gushing way. Oh, those Samaritans, they're so cute. They're so persecuted. Oh, you know, I feel so sorry for them. You know, by the way, there's nothing inherently good about a Samaritan. Just ask my son, Benjamin, who a few years ago, you know, when we were down near Tel Aviv, decided to play basketball with a whole bunch of Samaritan kids. After the game, I asked him, well, how was it? And he was really angry. He said they cheated all the time. And so that's not the point, or the point isn't that, um, again, there's some kind of sentimentality attached to all this. Love is defined right here in deeds of loving kindness. This man, the Samaritan, he shows love by all the practical things all the practical things that he does. First of all, he rescues, he takes pity on him. Yes. He bandages his wounds. He pours oil and wine on them. He puts the man on his own donkey, takes him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. He says, look after him, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense. So not only was there deeds of loving kindness, you, know, you might say there was at least some long-term commitment to this man's welfare and to his well being. So the Samaritan gave of his time. He gave of his money. He gave personally, right? And those, yes, Deeds of loving kindness, really, one to another, is what it means to love our neighbor. And I think it's interesting that the story is told about a Samaritan, because although Jews and Samaritans were enemies, they were also very close to each other. And isn't it sometimes true that the people that we have the most difficulty with are the people that are very much like ourselves, yes. And those are the people that we have a hard time loving or a hard time being merciful or compassionate towards. And so in the midst of this societal breakdown, surely Jesus comes with the answer for the society in first century Israel or for for societies in the 21st century, right? That um, to fulfill God's law and commandment and to live is first and foremost loving God. And of course, at the same time, loving our neighbor, even when those neighbors are our enemies. And instead of demonizing them, or instead of expressing hatred towards them, right? Jesus calls upon us to show them mercy. In the process of showing our enemies, or those who disagree with us, mercy. We are, we win these people, or we can win those, not only to the Lord, but enemies can become friends And if they don't become friends, our love and mercy towards them surely will confuse them to the point of disarming, yes, much of their hostility. And surely this is the message of Jesus. And I'd just like to close by reminding us that life Spiritual life again is connected to the way that we treat the other. And so just using a New Testament example, I'd like to start with First John chapter 2. It says, We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do What he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Hear the word do. I don't know if you noticed how many times the word do is used in the gospel passage that we read. Jesus ends by saying, go and do likewise. We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we obey his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command to believe in the name of his son and to love one another as he commanded us. Those who obey his commands live in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit that he gave us. And finally, This is love for God to obey his commands and his commands are not burdensome for everyone born of God overcomes the world. His commands are not burdensome and we may find it hard to love our neighbor, to show mercy to those who we don't like or don't agree with. But let's never forget that the Lord is always present by his Holy Spirit to help us and to enable us to overcome whatever feelings or objections we may have. And the place to start, I believe, is by praying intently for those that we have difficulties with, whether it's ethnically or personally or politically. Jesus said, you know, bless those who persecute us and pray for them. And I've discovered that over the years, if we really intently pray for people, it becomes very hard to hate them or to dislike them or to shun them. And so praying and then asking the Lord for the, asking the Lord who lives on us to overcome Yes, whatever objections or whatever feelings we may have. I think these would be the first two steps, right? To loving God, loving our neighbor, and thus coming into a deeper, more intimate, more uh, satisfying relationship, not only with e- with each other, but with the Lord himself. So Father in heaven, we pray that you would help us in all these matters. Help us to understand that... Uh, Obedience to you brings life, it brings blessing. And Lord, we ask that um, as a community, we will truly be able to be your witnesses and to not desecrate your name, but Lord, to bring life to others by the way that or are through the way that we obey you. And Lord, we do ask this in the mighty name of Jesus.